When we come into the Dharma Hall in the evening for the talk, it wouldn't be surprising if we had a wish that what might be spoken about would somehow make us feel good or feel better or feel at ease in some way. And it's sometimes the case that what our lives and our journeys ask us to turn towards does not always initially or perhaps beyond initially have that effect for us. And there's a, as I contemplated and found myself clear in what I wish to speak about this evening, I also felt in myself a, a sense of sort of, I wouldn't say quite unease or concern, but a sense, a sensitivity to what may be the impact of what I wish to speak about. And it's certainly not my wish to unsettle. But if we wish to follow the Buddha's teachings of wisdom and compassion, we are asked to turn towards what is true, to address and transform suffering in ourselves and in the world, facing the actuality as best we can of what is here, even when this is not easy, and then seeking to find what may be possible, what may be appropriate, what may be skillful in response. And what I'd like to speak about is not something that I imagine for many of you you are unaware of. And yet, just to speak, to name the situation of our human community, our world, It is serious at this time, critical, we could say. We face a a climate and ecological emergency, a crisis born of our human activity. And how do we respond as human beings, as practitioners, as followers of teachings of truth, of wisdom, of compassion? How do we respond as just ordinary folk. When we hear about the unprecedented climate climate destabilization, the accelerating environmental destruction that's happening already around the globe, intensifying extreme weather events, rising waters and flooding, Drought and fires burning out of control. Countless families and communities losing their homes, their land, their food security. Rapid species loss, melting polar ice caps, disappearing glaciers, degrading soil fertility, So many lakes, rivers and bodies of water poisoned by agricultural and industrial waste and oceans choking in plastic. To just take a moment and pause as we hear this information, to notice our responses. It's so important to stay close to ourselves in times of challenge, of difficulty, of crisis. And there are many responses we may have, of course, as I certainly do. We may understandably feel impotent or powerless, hopeless and helpless in the face of the vastness, the complexity and the seeming intractability of the problem. 
And yet I would suggest that although it's completely understandable we feel that way, we are not powerless or without the ability and capacity to make a response. And for myself, I have felt no choice but to find ways to respond. I cannot see how I could live with myself in this world without somehow turning towards what is happening. And I'd like to share something of my journey with that with you this evening. And some of you, in fact quite a number of you, will know because I spoke a little of this here last year and have spoken and retreats since then. Some of this that I wish to share. In late 2018, so just over a year ago now, I joined the, the ecological and climate action movement, Extinction Rebellion, that you may have heard of, be aware of. Together with Catherine, and together with many, many others, I've made the choice, we have made the choice, to engage in non-violent civil disobedience, calling for urgent action from our governments. And it's an interesting thing to bring the world here, it seems, or that aspect of it. And yet, of course, we come to understand as we practice that the world is here already. The world is not out there. It's certainly not the real world anymore out there than it is real here. Differently so, perhaps. But to actually include the world that we are not separate from is part of our practice. And for me, my journey has felt to be an expression of that which I do while sitting here equally. And it's kind of looked a bit different. I've been arrested and spent time in police cells on seven occasions now in the last 13 months. Blocking bridges in London was my beginning entry into this. Some of you will have heard about that action just over a year ago. In February last year, I blockaded or joined a group blockading an international petroleum conference in London by supergluing ourselves to the doors of the hotel. It's not something I imagined I would ever have done. <laughs> if someone had asked me a few months before, how likely are you to want to glue yourself to a hotel door? <laughs> Don't think I would have said, uh-uh. And during the April and October International Rebellion, sustained mass protest actions. I've chosen to, with a group of people, seek to bring about disruption to the city of London as the capital of the country I currently live. I've also locked myself to other activists outside the BBC, calling for it to tell the truth, to speak clearly of what is happening. And I've poured vegan fake blood outside of the residence of our Prime Minister on Downing Street to highlight the dangers that our children face in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to their ability to live. And I've trained many dozens of people in the principles of nonviolent direct action. And all of these actions have been taken together with groups of like-minded and deeply caring friends. It's not something I could have or would have done, I think, by myself. And I 
as others too. But I've been subject to criminal prosecutions and penalties for peaceful, non-violent actions that my conscience has called me to engage in. I now have a criminal record. I've been convicted five times. In the courts, I've spoken out about the dangers we face and the illegitimacy of the political and legal systems that enable and protect legal but profoundly destructive activities to continue and devastatingly harmful policies to be promoted within our legal political structure and system. And being arrested and convicted has meant that my confidence and certainties in being able to even come here have changed and we weren't sure I would be allowed in. Fortunately, at the border, they didn't ask. I didn't say. (laughs) But if I told them what I've just told you, I wouldn't have come. I wouldn't have been able to. And that's... That's, for me, a, a precious thing to have risked my contact and connection with this community, with this retreat with you and others here. And being arrested, being prosecuted, it's stressful, it's oppressive. The Vedana is really uniformly unpleasant. (laughs) Actually, that's not quite true. Some aspects of it have not been unpleasant. To speak and to listen to friends speaking and facing personal risks for the common good has actually been uplifting and inspiring. But while I'm deeply sorry for the impact that my choices may have on others, and I could feel in myself it would be deeply sorrowful for me if I hadn't been able to come. We had another teacher lined up, just in case, who kindly was willing to be on standby. And I don't wish to have such an impact on others, on this community, for instance. But at the same time, in a kind of curious way, I find myself at peace with the consequences for myself in this, whatever they may be. For two weeks in April and again In October, I joined the Extinction Rebellion International Climate Protests, engaging in extended actions of non-violent civil disobedience in London. We chose many friends, including actually, I was curious to discover many meditators and practitioners in other spiritual communities. And we didn't come in wearing hats saying who we were. But as we talked and got to know each other, we started, I started to realize, wow, there's a lot of people with not just a lot of heart and courage and care, but also a depth of spiritual practice. Because, of course, to engage in situations of significant confrontation and stay non-peaceful, to keep one's heart open, this is a practice and a powerful one. And with many friends, we... We sought to cause disruption, to cause trouble, so to speak, for ordinary folk, equally as for government and industry, to bring attention to the urgent need for action in the face of what is an unfolding emergency. It's not something that might happen. It's already happening. And over 3,000 of us have been arrested in the UK alone. Many of us prosecuted. And I find it clearly for myself that it is my spiritual practice. It's my dharma that says, do this, to act in this way. You were probably aware or heard of, I imagine, many of you at least, in 2018, um, I think October, 
2018, or maybe it was September, I can't remember now, the United Nations uh, IPCC Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change brought the uh, report that um, gathered the research of the previous years across the the experts, the researchers, the scientists of all countries around the globe and collate, collated and analysed all the, the results and the information and seeing what was being revealed clearly and unarguably across this vast amount of scientific research, study and measurements was an unequivocal, unequivocal message stating we have only a short amount of time, 12 years from then, they estimated, 10 years from now, to make massive changes that we need to make in how we live on this world and in this world to avoid climate catastrophe. And reports coming out from many bodies and groups since then have highlighted and detailed also the ecological devastation taking place, the accelerated species loss, the destruction of habitats and ecosystems. A million species at risk of extinction according to the United Nations Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystems report in 2019. And further recent research actually suggests the situation may be worse even than those reports say. Some of what is suggested and pointed to in the conclusions of respected and careful science and scientists is that there's a significant risk of global social breakdown due to mass migration, people movement, people moving because of food food scarcity. So not the migration itself, but people start to move when they don't have food when their homes and their food security are undermined through drought, through famine, through fire, through flooding. And the war in Syria and the migration from Syria, many tens of thousands and perhaps a million people trying to find their way to Europe, a crisis in the last year of immense proportion. In fact, arising out of climatic changes leading to famine. We see that food scarcity, migration, easily leads to violent conflict over scarce resources. And that this poses risks potentially of near-term human extinction in various scenarios that could be imagined and that are projected. Not more likely than not, in fact, much less likely, but still possible, given how things could go. If we do not change the way our society, our economy, and our world function, and it's like, as the, this one, one report suggested, there's a 1 in 20 chance of human extinction. Now, that seems... Actually, that's not too high, just 5%. And yet, of course, would we put our children or our grandchildren on a plane if we knew there was a 1 in 20 chance of it coming down? Would we get on that plane ourselves? No way. And actually, that's what we're doing. It. This, this whole planet is that vehicle that our children will be on and their children. So I'd like again to invite you to take a moment to breathe and just feel your body sitting on the earth just as you are, as you're hearing and perhaps contemplating these words. And just notice what it's like to let the air come in, to feel your body open or soften if it does, to feel the firmness and solidity of the earth beneath you upon which we rest, and to see that what we're talking about here, this is dukkha, this is 
something hard to bear. And there is a cause and an end and a path to be found, just as the Four Noble Truths each have an action associated with them. The first noble truth to be understood, the truth of dukkha, of suffering, to be understood. The second of craving, tanha, to be let go of. So too this truth of ecological and climate dukkha calls for action. When we understand when we see truly, it calls our action in alignment or to align with, with this. So I really invite you to pause and breathe. And if you feel you need to just bring a bit more attention to that as I'm speaking, please listen and take good care of what feels necessary, feels right feels supportive for you. It's sometimes incomprehensible to me, it seems, if I look at what's happening, that this could be happening. It doesn't make sense. And I think perhaps I'm not alone in this. How can this be? Is a completely understandable response. Of course, sometimes we say, well, it can't be so, because I can't see how it could be so. Quite a lot of folk, I think, are still caught there. It can't be this, because how could that be so? And yet this is what's happening. And how could this be so? Well, the way that makes sense for me in understanding it, the the only way I can really quite make sense of this, because we know what's going on, and we have for 40 or more years. In fact, the fossil fuel industry has known for longer than that. But we have collectively, publicly, and at a shared level of media and political information, we've known since the 70s. And yet, the way it makes sense, the way I understand it is, this is a form of addiction. We are collectively addicted to a way of living that is profoundly harmful. It seems we're acting collectively like an addict. The doctors have told us our lifestyle is killing us. But we can't stop. It's not that we don't care. We can't stop, it seems. And just as the image or metaphor of addiction seems to express some of what seems to be happening. It's like it's beyond our choice at a collective level, it seems. What's useful in what's been learned and understood in the recovery world and working with addiction makes a lot of sense here, too. It's like we need some honesty to just recognize what's actually happening. The way we are living is killing us and our planet in a tragic way. A tragically unnecessary way. And that honesty of that, just to sit with that, to breathe with that, so important. And there's a humility we need as well to realize that actually what we've tried to do so far hasn't worked. Our current responses have failed. Our governments and our other movements and activities of protest and calling for change have not brought about what's needed. The call to government, to industry, to change direction, it's not been heard. We're still planning further fossil fuel explorations. The conference I was glued to the doors of the hotel was looking collectively at how we as an industry and states involved in that industry, nations, 
could seek further oil resources in Africa on this particular conference, amongst other things. We know here in the US the further support being given for fossil fuel industries. When we acknowledge that the way we've so far tried to respond has failed, when we have that humility, both personally and collectively, it perhaps gives us some sense, oh, we have to try something different. And so, again, from the from the recovery, the wisdom of the recovery world in dealing with addiction, there's an understanding that what one has to do is actually name what's happening and to stop colluding. And that sometimes to not enable harmful behavior requires a form of tough love, which doesn't seem particularly compassionate or kindly on the surface. And to block the traffic in the roads of a city for days on end to cause all kinds of trouble, distress, disruption, and at times genuine hardship and grievous loss to some individuals who may not have got to something really important. But to do so because this actually gets the attention of the world, of the government, of the economic system. This is something that I understand in terms of what's perhaps needed. Or I would go further and say what I understand as needed here at this time. It's not all of what's needed. It's not the only thing that's needed. But when we've called out in every way we can and we are not being heard, we must consider what other ways are possible. And interestingly, to engage in disruption, to create disruption through peaceful, non-violent civil disobedience. In a certain way, this is very similar to what we do in meditation. You might be surprised to hear this. But in fact, when we engage in meditation, we have to create an inner environment of non-judgment and non-blaming. We see how at first there's so much judgment, so much criticism. When we first come into meditation, we tend to judge and blame others for all the conditions of my life that are difficult. As we start to look, we see, oh, actually, I've got quite a lot to do with what's going on here. We perhaps start to blame ourselves. But actually, the deepening of our practice, the transformation that's called for here, really asks us to let go of blame and look and see what's happening. And what we see is that we're coerced so much of the time by patterns and habits and behaviors that do not serve our deeper well-being or our world. And in meditation, learning to find freedom is premised or founded on creating an inner atmosphere of non-judgmental kindness and then finding the courage and the clarity to disobey the internal injunctions that say you must do those things that you know do not serve you. And to equally disregard those injunctions that say you may not do the things which you know will serve. And this is freedom. When we start to listen to what we know is true and useful and not to the old voices that say what should be but does not serve. And so nonviolent civil disobedience works within the social consciousness, within the collective fabric of shared society and shared psyche to bring attention to, to begin to disrupt and to allow change to come. Because what we're dealing with here is not just an economic or an ecological crisis. The climate and ecological emergency is at its heart a crisis of spirit. It's a crisis of disconnection, born of failing to see our sacred and inseparable interconnection with and, in, and dependence upon everything, everything that is here. And everything we've mistakenly called other, everything we've failed to care for, to respect and to value equally as ourselves, 
Because what we see is everything that we do to another, to our planet, to the ecosystem, to the other living beings and habitats. This is done to ourselves. There isn't somewhere else we can throw rubbish. What we throw away is still here. Where else could it go? Here is all there is. And in fact, in the journey of time, we find the plastic that went in the bin or on the road and into the river and into the sea comes back to us in the fish that we may have eaten or fed our children. Or it comes back to us in the air in microparticles that we inhale and we find within the very living tissues of our body, plastics and so much more. This crisis of the spirit born of not understanding that our individual well-being is inextricably woven to the welfare and the well-being of all. Our individual protection is dependent upon protecting the well-being, the safety and the life of all. If we don't understand this and act out of that not understanding, this is where it takes us. This is what we see. And so, this trajectory, our current directionality of collective self-harm, which is what it is, this calls for our care, our love, our concern to be given courageous expression, to be brought into the world to see what can be done here. Just as we work with our inner processes and patternings. And rightly and importantly give care to this. So too, because what is inner and what is outer are not separate. We're called to work also in ways that we may have yet to discover or discern. Ways perhaps for some we may already have learned and be exploring. We are also called to work in this dimension. Sitting on the streets in the face of angry motorists. It was not easy to hold our ground as the police would come. The street blockades we held for days. The days were long. The nights were cold. We didn't get a lot of sleep day after day. Discomfort and inconvenience inevitably come when we make a commitment. It's the nature of commitments. When we commit to sitting on our cushion or to walking 45 minutes, we encounter discomfort and inconvenience. And it is always so. But when we do it for something that's more important than just being comfortable, and all because we understand that our deeper comfort and ease depends on our willingness to sometimes take on consciously degrees of discomfort and unease in the service of something more important than that. Just as in our meditation practice, when one chooses to sit or stand or take a stand in some way, it's like that. And we made that choice to stay when told to leave, facing arrest and prosecution. We found comfort in our shared dedication and connection with each other. And we felt our solidarity with all the people and the many peoples in our world and many in less developed and less privileged societies and communities who've stood up for their land and their ecology, and many of whom have faced much greater threats and risks than we were facing. And uh, something like four environmental protesters are murdered every week, mostly in the global south, such as the uh, celebrated Honduran environmentalist, Berta... I'm not actually sure how to pronounce her surname... Cacheres, I think. 
who was murdered in 2016 for opposing destructive but lucrative development proposed in her country. In one part of the protest in April, we had a boat in the middle of Oxford Circus and it was named after her. And just this October, around the time of the second phase of international rebellion, which in fact quite a few people in the United States engaged in. The movement has moved and grown and taken root here. 11,000 scientists from around the world signed a letter, a report saying, first of all documenting the details of what's happening, but then saying, we are facing untold suffering if we continue to collectively fail to act. Untold suffering. And there are new reports every day if we look, if we read, if we follow them. So what do we do if we hear this clear and overwhelming scientific consensus calling for urgent and uncompromising action to save our children, our communities and our world from ecological devastation? And we see this being disregarded. We see this being ignored. It seems in the pursuit of profit, of convenience, of consumption, this dukkha is hard to bear. Hard to bear. And the temptation to look away, to turn away, is so understandable. Again, I really invite you to breathe. Breathe out. Breathe in. It's good to get them in that order. Breathe out again. That's what happens next. Notice that's still going on. Yeah, body's still breathing. And we are asked by our Dharma teachings to turn towards this painful contemplation, to open to whatever we feel in response. Perhaps fear, perhaps grief, perhaps anger, horror, denial, numbness, skepticism, confusion, or all of those, any of those, other things than those, just taking a moment to notice where you are and just to breathe with that. Taking a moment to check if there's anything you need. You just need to feel a sense of contact with yourself. You just need to sense that there's other people here with you too, that you're not on your own in this moment. As we contemplate both the actions of those who seek material gain from harmful and destructive activity and perhaps equally contemplate our own limitations or failures in changing the way we ourselves live. It's important to remember the Dharma teachings that remind us that identifying with anger, with judgment, with blame towards others or ourselves is unhelpful. When I first encountered Extinction Rebellion, one of the things that made me think, oh, maybe this is a movement that I could really line up with, was the understanding that they had of not blaming, not shaming. Not those who seem to be perpetrators, not those who seem to be not doing as well as I am at doing my best, and equally not ourselves, because we're all in this together. And we all, to some extent, well, actually not all, but most of us, most of us participate and perhaps even benefit some from what it is that generates this tragically painful situation. And there are probably still, of course, some relatively small in number communities of, of human living on this earth that are not contributing to this situation. But they are few. And so we, are, we need to work with our reactions, our responses, to understand what could be helpful here. And for most of us, we really need, it seems to me, and I know I need, 
to talk with friends and with family and with spiritual companions about what's going on in me. Not just what's going on in the world. We need to acknowledge that too. But we also need to acknowledge what goes on inside me when I contemplate that. And the fear or the sorrow or the rage that might understandably arise or the shame and sorrow. But not identifying with, not solidifying, not acting out of reactivity if we possibly can. To acknowledge our responses, to feel the anger, the grief, the pain, the sorrow. And to make it a priority to immerse ourselves in whatever brings us nourishment, whatever gives us a sense of connection, to be in places in the natural world or or with people or things that uplift, that touch, that bring soothing or sweetness to our hearts, to our minds, to our body. We need this. Equally as it's important we turn towards what is hard, we equally must practice as a conscious practice turning towards what gives, supports and nourishes us, even just the, the firmness of the earth that is still here for us, that hasn't abandoned us at this time. Or the trees that keep offering oxygen into our atmosphere. Or whatever it is that touches you, that moves you, that nourishes you. We need to take care of ourselves here, just as we need to take care of the world. These go together always. And not to be moving from a kind of an interiority of inner concern to an apparent externality of outer concern, imagining these are different things in the end, because they are not and cannot be, although they may appear at times to be so. And having found what nourishment we can, honoured what difficulties we're able to share and hold with others, not by ourselves. As Shada was speaking last night, we have our own share, but also we need to hold our share together with each other. We all make up part of that capacity. And to also then find ways to harness this love and care and concern to engage, to call, it seems to me, for the urgent and effective action that is needed from the leaders of our countries and our world that needs all of us to call for it before they will listen, or more of us to call more loudly in ways that can't be ignored. And equally, of course, engaging in making such changes as we can individually in our own lifestyles, while understanding that the scale and urgency of our situation demands concerted, collective action by central governments. It's beyond what we can do by just doing things differently ourselves. It's way beyond that. So that's important for a sense of alignment and integrity. But I think my sense and understanding of our situation now is we actually need to find a way to shift the collective engagement not just at the individual level. And our, our social sort of orientation towards an individual perspective of responsibility or action is one that is unable to meet the circumstance we face, that is actually born out of that individualizing of our way of engaging and cannot be resolved by more of it. So it is easy to feel at times perhaps for us despair, frustration as the call for a change of direction is ignored. We see the denial, minimization, and we can see ongoing support for the industries such as the fossil fuel industry that contribute so much to this problem and support for renewables that might actually alleviate it is undermined or withdrawn. There are strong forces at work here. We must understand that. Greed and hatred. 
craving and aversion in our moving in our world to understand these are the forces we are seeking to address in our practice and in our world. We don't have to blame ourselves or another for the fact that we are subject to them and sometimes overpowered by them. But we do need to turn towards them and engage with them. Sitting on the streets as we were, Again and again, the police approached us in large numbers, having been told to use the full force of the law. And we sat together, chanting in solidarity with each other and with all the people, all the beings, all the living things who are in danger. And equally with those people who came, charged with the job to remove us. Chanting to the police as they came and picked us up and carried us physically away, one at a time chanting, police, we love you. We're doing this for your children too. Police, we love you. We're doing this for your children too. Trying to meet them as human beings, not as somehow oppositional to what we were doing. As they carried us off. Nonviolent civil disobedience gives ordinary people a voice that cannot be ignored because it harnesses the power of collective action, collective concern, focused through creating disruption, which gets attention. Disruption gets the attention of politics and of economics, of the political and the economic, because disruption affects the ability of the system to keep moving things around, and therefore to keep making money. Money is mostly made in a primary way by moving things or people from here to there. There's a bit more to the economic analysis than that. (laughs) But that is the basic thing. You go and get something where it's cheap and plentiful, and you move it to somewhere where it's rare and therefore can be sold for more than you paid for it. And a number of quite complex variations on that theme. And so there's power in stopping that activity from just continuing as normal. And sacrifice. What happens in a collective social community when we become aware that people are taking risks with themselves? taking personal risks for the collective good. It touches us. Just as firefighters who go into a burning building are honoured because they take a risk for our collective well-being or for the welfare of others. Something in us responds and sees and is moved by people taking risks, not for personal gain or advantage, but for something greater than that. And it can precipitate real change. The American Civil Rights Movement, inspired by Rosa Parks, led by Martin Luther King, born of that courage to take risks, as so many people have done here in this country, in that movement, and in other countries too, the independence movement in in India, in in the leadership of Mahatma Gandhi, to throw off the oppression of the British colonial rule in that country and people sitting down as they did in front of the British army and saying we will not move. Young people, not so young people, sitting there saying even if you shoot at us we will not lose. Move. My grandmother, who's from India, she's Bengali, she was one of those people. She was in that movement. That's how she met my grandfather. If that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here. (laughs) Interesting. And here am I talking about my own journey in this way. Nobody's been pointing loaded firearms at me. And so I know that what I've chosen is a much less challenging choice to make than many people have made in history and continue to make even in our day. Again, more often in the global south in these situations, but also in our world that I know this particular country is 
less gentle in its policing than Britain where I live now. I was arrested on a number of occasions and on each occasion endeavoured to speak with the officers as was our shared intention to talk about our concerns about why we were doing this as we were arrested and sometimes we, we kind of made really warm connections with them. It was very interesting. Once they got you to the police van and you were no longer going to be able to escape, they kind of went off duty. It's like now they just need to get you to the station and that's going to happen. And then we could talk. Up until then, they're these highly trained and quite firm characters, you could say. Police force. I got the meaning of force in that phrase over these times. But as we talked, we shared and we saw and heard of their concerns too and the underfunding of their service and their concerns also for their children. And it was something quite powerful to be able to do that. And I know, of course, and tragically and sadly, this is not everyone's experience in relationship to the police force and that I have immense privilege as someone who is for appearance and certainly in terms of most of my social experience appears to be a a white, heterosexual, middle-aged, cisgender man with a university education and a middle-class kind of lifestyle. Wow, that's about as good as it gets if you're going to meet the police, I'm afraid. I'm fortunate for me, but I'm afraid because that is not so for us all. And I don't want to, by saying that my experience was one where I could engage with a degree of safety and ease with those officers... I don't want to disregard the experience of, of many other people who have experienced much harsher and unjust treatment in such situations due to prejudice, discrimination or institutional racism, reactivity, cruelty or just lack of care. And I also want to say that as far as I can tell, most, though not maybe all, Individual officers at an individual level are essentially decent human beings trying to do a difficult and important job. And my job there was to try and meet them as they did what they had to do. Spirituality recognises the value and the sacredness of all living things, of all living systems, and asks us to prioritise the collective well-being over pursuing personal gain or advantage, over maintaining individual or personal privilege and benefit, to let go of our comfort and our convenience, to take risks with our privilege and our good fortune, perhaps even our liberty, in the service of our shared interest, our common good, our collective well-being. This is something we may see as a sacred duty. And interestingly, it brings a deepening of spiritual well-being in the service of the fragile web of life. We are woven into it when we act in accordance with this. And as Martin Luther King said, never be afraid to do what is right society's punishments are small compared to the wounds we inflict on our soul when we look the other way. There's this way in which we understand as we practice that our spiritual well-being is something we cannot turn our back on. We need to take care of. And there's a way in which we injure that. There's a term in sort of, sort of, I don't know, modern or possibly sort of developing psychological understanding called moral injury. It's the harm that is done to a human's heart, mind, spirit, psyche, soul, whichever word we might use, when they realize they've either instigated or participated in or colluded in something harmful that they did not wish or mean or intend to do that. It's deeply grievous to us when we realize this is so. And the healing of that is born of actually finding ways to respond, to do what we can, it seems to me.
I spent one night in October locked to a fellow rebel sitting on a road outside Downing Street. The police cleared all the other protesters from the site at about midnight. But the team that's specialist police team that they use for cutting people out of lock-on equipment, because when you lock yourself to another rebel, you do it by putting your hand into a metal tube and then you lock with a chain and a carabiner to a centre piece inside it. And the police can't move you because it's, it's too dangerous. And once they arrest you, they're responsible for your well-being. So they're not allowed to move you unless these people come. And these people had gone home for the night. So there we were, sitting on the road. There was a dozen police or more who really were not very happy that they had to stay there and guard us. I mean, we weren't going anywhere. We were surrounded by them, and they let us know they weren't really that happy to have to stand there in the really cold night. So they actually stripped all our blankets off us. They took all the things we had that we brought to stay warm and sort of comfortable, as far as you can be comfortable sitting on a road locked to someone you've just met for hours. And I found myself again and again drawing on my meditation practice. How many days and hours and times I've spent sitting with my body uncomfortable or my heart under pressure and just breathing out in that discomfort and that stress and just, okay, this is not easy. This is hard to bear. But I can do this. I know this. This is not unknown territory for me. And getting locked up, thrown in a cell, ha. Huh, I get to have some time off. I normally have to pay to get one of these. A room by myself and three meals a day. Again, not for everyone is the experience like that. For some, it's scary. I remember a young man I was arrested with. He'd never been by himself and with his mind for a day locked in a room. And it was hard. But for me, it was like, ah, yeah, I can do that. That's been my path. It's not necessarily anyone else's or someone else's, yours. But although I don't know what you might need to do, what you might be moved to do, what you could do, if you even feel moved to do it, that's not for me to know or say. But what I would suggest and invite you to is to contemplate what feels true, authentic, real and meaningful for you. I would really invite you to inform yourself of the situation. If things I say don't quite make sense, check it out and see for yourself. That's okay. I don't claim to know it all, but I've got everything exactly, perfectly right. This is how I understand the situation. And listen to your heart. Listen to your body. Listen to your life. So you can find what feels authentic and true for you in this realm of mutual interdependence. Our intentional actions, our choices, what we do and don't do, they don't guarantee outcomes. We've seen that. We've learnt that here. We know that. But I have a deep confidence that they always make a difference. They always make a difference. Whatever choice, whatever we do, however we do it, it will contribute in some way to what is the outcome's And I still feel uplifted by the atmosphere of heartfelt love, peace, goodness, of courage and nobility and dignity that stayed with us even as we were eventually cleared and moved away from each side, even as we lost the ground we were holding in these actions over the course of days and days. And since then, the public discourse, at least in the world as I encounter it, has changed. That we hear the words spoken more clearly and fully of the emergency. We see and hear the reports of what is happening and what is needed more fully. It's something you can have a conversation with about, with others about, more easily now than one could a year ago. And this is born of many people, not just the protest action I've been involved with, of course. Greta Thunberg and her amazing, courageous, beautiful, vulnerable and unshakable standing up for what she cared what she cares about and the way so many young people have been inspired so beautifully and so poignantly to call for their 
future to be protected and preserved. And it is, in some ways, of course, too late to prevent some of the significant harm which is already happening. The glaciers melting. Some of them are gone. The fires in Australia at this time burning out of control. Famine in Syria and elsewhere. But there is so much we can do to turn this, to reduce the harm, to transform. If our nations can be called to act urgently and collectively. There's just a little more I'd like to say, and I'm aware I've been speaking for an hour. So I just want to check if you're doing okay. And if you need to move your body or breathe or (sighs) do anything you need to do, please feel free to do that. I'm just going to <coughs> So I invite you. I invite you to remember that the future is always uncertain. <coughs> Our spiritual practice is a foundation for meeting whatever comes with an open heart. As we face the actuality of our situation, it's so important that we cultivate these boundless dimensions of heart we've talked about to establish ourselves in love and kindness and in a caring and friendly orientation, to act where we can with compassion and courage, to heal, to transform, to reduce suffering, to make a practice of acknowledging and appreciating all that is blessed, that is fortunate, that is beautiful that is precious, that is uplifting in our world, in our lives, in our hearts. Because there is so much of this. That's why we care for this world. That's why we wish to do what we can for it. And at the same time, bowing to the natural and lawful, unstoppable unfoldment of life with equanimity, understanding processes maybe beyond what we individually, or perhaps even we collectively, can shift or move in the ways we might wish to move them, but knowing that nonetheless what we do give to it makes a difference in our hearts, if nowhere else. And of course our hearts are powerful and important here. And when we see that there are so many different ways we might respond, there are many different things. What I've spoken is where I have gone. You may go different ways and bless you in any way you find you are moved or called to engage or to act. Even just quiet conversations with friends at home. Or growing healthy vegetables. Or whatever it is that for you feels meaningful. In the end, we know that, of course, we, our species, our world, it's not forever. Nothing is. We've contemplated that. And if nothing before, at some point the sun will go out and run out of energy, and then we won't be living here, and nor our ancestors, our descendants, I imagine. So, of course, it's not about whether or not we die, or our children die, because, of course, we and our children will eventually die, one way or another. It's not about how long we can live for ourselves or our world. It's more about how we live, the life that we have. And this is the question that the spiritual journey calls us to engage with wholeheartedly. Leonard Cohen said in the song Boogie Street, he says, And so, my friends, be not afraid. We are so lightly here. It is in love that we are made. In love we disappear. Is it not still inexplicable, remarkable and blessed that we're here at all? So I'd like to just sit quietly for a moment to finish. 
just like to invite you to take a moment to look around and see that you're not alone here. If you wish, you don't have to. But just notice there are other people here. You are in a collective field of blessed humanity. On a journey of waking up. And so I I just wish and offer my wish for all of our hearts to be held with kindness to know our connection to each other and to life and to live that with love with beauty nobility and this is the offering of our life that really is a simple response to having received this life at all may we and all beings be safe and well may all living things all living systems all living creatures plants, ecosystems, our very living earth. May she be safe and well. May they be safe and well. May our lives be offered as they are given in blessedness and beauty and in love. And so, my friends, be not afraid. We are so lightly here. It is in love that we are made. In love we disappear. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.